Our guest today is Peter Rollins, who's a leading figure of the radical Christianity movement and author of books such as How Not to Speak of God and Insurrection. He's a philosopher, a theologian, a believer and a doubter. He's developed a number of contemplative practices to help Christians accept doubt and complexity, such as his Atheism for Lent. Will you please join with me Oh, that's, that's not a joke, actually. That's, that's a, <laughs> would you please join with me in welcoming Peter Rowlands. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. I feel a little bit like I'm in the lion's den, uh, which is an appropriate religious metaphor, probably, because I think many of us um, are wary of religion and are wary of like systems of belief that uh, you know, make scapegoats of other people, that create strong tribal identities that say, we on this side of the river are right and those people on that side of the river are wrong. And um, I share that. I come from Northern Ireland where religion is used as a weapon or was used as a weapon uh, to create those tribal identities and to uh, protect uh, from e exploring some deeper political and social issues. So I want to share with you that concern and I want to critique it. But I also want to explore how perhaps within Christianity um, there's a different way of reading things that's not about a mode of belief but rather a way of being. Um, something that Simon mentioned was some contemplative practices that we've developed in Belfast. One of them is Atheism for Lent, where we read all the great critics of religion, not to judge them, but to let them judge us. What better way, because Lent is all about giving something up than to give up God, and, uh, and, uh, and, and experience that cry, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That great atheistic cry. We also have a thing called the Omega Course, there's an evangelical course called the Alpha Course where they, they look at theological ideas over 12 weeks and it's a way of entry into Christianity. The Omega Course is 12 weeks outside, you'd say exit Christianity, um, or at least toxic religion, uh, where we look at all the theological topics, but instead of coming down on this is the right way to interpret it, we just show that there's multiple views on these, these issues and we leave it for people to discuss. Uh, one of the other ones is the Evangelism Project where we go out to be evangelized by other communities. So we go to the Islamic society, for example. Now the evangelism doesn't really happen by uh, you know, hearing about Islam, that might occur, but the real evangelism happens when we as a group say, what do we look like to you? Because we all have blind spots. We don't see a lot of things within ourselves. We need other people's eyes in order to see our own weirdness. Our first experience of the other is they're strange and monstrous and weird. They've got weird views on marriage or raising kids. And then we, we look at ourselves through their eyes and we go, oh my goodness, I'm a bit weird. You know, look at how I raise kids, look at my views on marriage and politics. And often our fear of the other is not a fear that they're strange and other to themselves, but that if we see ourselves through their eyes, we'll realize how other we are to ourselves, how weird we are. So these are some of the contemplative practices. But I want to take a few moments just to talk about um, my experience in Belfast. There, there's a story from back home, actually, about the RUC, 
during the Troubles. We had a little bit of a conflict you may have heard of. And uh, the, the police force were called the REC and, and they got some money from the European Union to go over to America to train with the FBI and the CIA. So 12 of the officers come over, they land in America, they're taken to this forest, kind of like a team building thing, beating drums naked in a forest or whatever weirdness. And, and anyway, they're all there, they're meeting their counterparts, and the team builder guy says, okay, I want you to go into the forest and retrieve a rabbit. So simple enough, FBI go first. Very quiet, they're in there for about 15 minutes, and then you hear a single gunshot ring through the air, and they bring a rabbit out, dead, you know, bullet through the center of the head, perfect shot. The guy's like, well done. Then it's the CIA's turn, very, very quiet guys, you hardly notice they were there. They just slink into the forest. They're in there for about an hour, and then they come out with a rabbit. It's dead, not a mark on its body, right? <laughs> they just find it like that, okay? It's a little pinprick somewhere, but I don't know what that was. Right? Then it's the REC's turn, so they're like, get their flat jackets on, their plastic bullet rounds, their batons, their war paint, and it's, it's like a scene from uh, Braveheart. They charge in, they're in there for ages. And finally, the biggest REC guy uh, is, comes out with the others, and he's dragging a bear behind him. <laughs> and uh, the team builder's like, he says, first of all, you were in there for three weeks, and what were you doing? And secondly, that's not a rabbit, that's a bear. The REC man just smiles, looks the bear into the eyes, and the bear starts to shake and goes, I'm a rabbit, I'm a rabbit, right? Now, I know, tells you something about the REC, but, um, <laughs> but it also speaks to me about my experience of religion. Religion was that thing you went to as a young person, and then they closed the doors, and the pool tables all dropped, and then some, some guy came in, turned his seat the wrong way around, and talked about his best friend Jesus, and then scared the bejesus out of you, told you that if you didn't accept Christ and you walked out that door, you know, you might get hit by a bus, and it, it's, like a, it's like a threat. You know, like the mafia, you know, if you don't pay the protection money, who knows? You know, it's like, it's like, like they've employed bus drivers out there to kill you if you don't actually accept it. And so you, you cry it out. And, and that's what religion often is. It's a way of affirming a set of beliefs, uh, creating a tribal identity and giving a little bit of consolation. Helps you sleep at night. You know, I'm scared that the universe might be meaningless. I'm scared that everything might turn to dust. I'm scared that everyone I've ever loved will, will disappear and the, the universe will end in entropy. And so I embrace Christianity as a set of beliefs. And I, and I want to reject that and give an alternative reading. The Christianity is a mood of life. And in order to try to articulate this very quickly, I'm sorry, we don't have a lot of time, um, I'm going to use the analogy of a magic trick. Now, magic tricks generally have three parts, a traditional kind of illusion. The first part is called the pledge, if anyone's seen the film The Pledge. Um, it's where you get an object, a card or a coin or something like that. That's the pledge. I'm going to do something with this coin. So you give me 25 cents or something. Then there is the turn. I make the coin disappear. I can do a trick like this actually, where I did it with the other day with some kids, where you take a coin, you rub it on a table, and then you rub it into your, your arm and it disappears, right? And uh, that's called the turn. The turn is the disappearance of the object. But people don't clap at that stage. You know, the, the trick's not over. If you, if you finish there, people are just wondering where the coin is they're looking for. It. People want order to be reestablished. So the third part of a magic trick is, of course, the prestige where I lift up a glass on the table and there's the 25 cents, right? Now, the interesting thing about a magic trick, of course, is you're never getting back what you think you're getting back. You're not getting back the same 25 cents. 
25 cents, it's on the back of my neck. You know, while you're looking there, I've done a little sleight of hand and put it on the back of my neck. And, and, and the coin that's under the cup, oh, that's something I placed there five minutes ago. You know, if someone does a trick with a bird and then they bring the bird back, I'm sorry to tell you, that bird's dead. You know, <laughs> they broke its neck and stuck it up his sleeve, right? You know, that's, that bird's gone. And, you know, magicians have hundreds of dead birds. That beautiful white dove, there's another bleeding one in the back, right? So, Prestige is you get what you think back, but you get something different. And so I think in life, and uh, I think the subversive reading of Christianity is that there is an object that is going to be made to disappear. And, and what is that object? Well, very briefly, I have to go back to our birth. There's two types of birth. There's the physical birth, where we come into the world, but then there is the birth of selfhood. You know, the body, our, our mother's body is the, is the womb of our physical birth and our physicality is the womb of the birth of our subjectivity. Happens, it's called the mirror phase. The point when I go, I am me, not you. I have an identity. And as soon as I have that, there's an I and there's a thou. There's an I and a not I. There's an inside and there's an outside. So my, my initial experience of the world is an experience of separation that there's stuff that's not me, that I'm, I'm not at one with everything. And very quickly, uh, one of our first primordial experiences of that is separation from our mother. I mean, we literally come out of our mother and then we're feeding at the breast and then eventually we're not and we are and we're not. And, and the, the weaning process, this is called a weaning process, we have to kind of experience a type of separation from the primary caregiver. And if that doesn't happen, something awful occurs. You know, you become Irish, right? Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like honestly, that's why Jesus was Irish. You know, he lived with his mum till he was 30 and uh, she thought he was God. Um, so, <laughs> they, you know, and, and you're caught between a rock and a hard place, you know. You either separate and that's awful or you don't separate and that's awful. And that's the first experience of what Oscar Wilde called there's only one thing worse than not getting what you want and it's getting what you want, right? Now, I want to argue that this process continues as we grow we, we have a sense of separation, we have a sense of loss or lack in the core of our being, and we think something will satisfy it. Uh, it might be money, it might be a job, it might be looking a certain way, it might be going out with a certain person. We, we end up having this sense of a frenetic pursuit. Now, the other part of this, by the way, is um, what's called the prohibition. Whenever you're being weaned, you're, you're told you can't have that. You can't have that. You can't be with your mother. You have to play with these toys. You have to have something else. And that creates a really interesting dilemma because the more you're told you can't have something, the more you want it. This is the Freudian insight. Like, you know, what makes a toy magical? If a child's playing with a, with a, with a toy and another child comes up and just happens to want to play with it as well, and then the first child says, no, 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 you can't, you can't have that. Their child's like, well, you know, I, I think you misunderstand. You know, I really would love to like play with that toy if, that, if that's okay. And the other child's like, well, you know, to be honest, I'm actually playing with it and it would be better if you came back in half an hour. And then very soon it's World War III, okay? Very soon that little transformer is the most important thing in the world ever, right? If you say to a kid, you can't have a puppy for Christmas. Well, the puppy was just a puppy until you said that. It's like, I really want the puppy. I'll feed it every day. I'll walk it every day. I'm, you'll never have to buy me anything again because this puppy will satisfy every need in me, right? And of course, once you get the puppy, they walk it for a week and then you have to drown it in the bath, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, this is... 
this is like, a, you know, we're, and, and Hollywood works on this principle. There's always in a film, it's called a MacGuffin, something that everybody will do anything to get. And it's always kind of prohibited. It's something you can't quite grasp. You're always pursuing it. And the film has to end when you get it. When the, when the bad guy gets, or the good guy gets 10 million or 100 million dollars, or, or, or the woman gets the man or whatever it is, it doesn't end six months later when the woman and the man are sitting in silent resentment after having had an argument over somebody not doing the laundry, right? That you it doesn't end whenever they've, you know, a year later after they did the bank robbery and they're on their sixth holiday to the Bahamas and bored out of their minds and wishing they were back robbing the bank. Cause, and anyway, they had money anyway. It's not cheap to rob a bank. Yes, they cost money these days, right? So they, they weren't broke. But there's this sense in which that, that, that there's always something that, 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 that's revolving. Mission Impossible 3, I think it is, has, has that object, and it's called the rabbit's foot, which is genius. They don't even tell you what it is, because they don't have to. It's just this black market arms dealer wants it. So the IMF team really wants it. And, and so the whole film is operating around nothingness itself. In fact, in fact, one of the characters even says, you know, whenever my lecturer said, you see something that a bad guy wants that badly, you call it the anti-God. You know, like nothingness itself. The whole film revolves around nothingness. Now, in truth, um, by the way, I'm Irish. You, I, you get two talks for the price of one. I speak very fast. So you're, you're getting your money's worth. You know, if you want to give more money at the end, you're more than welcome. Um, uh, the, uh, where was I? I mentioned impossible, right? The, the idea... Um, there's nothing as itself. Oh yeah, it's, it's kind of like hinted that it's a chemical weapon, okay? But what they could have done is it could have, the whole film could have revolved around nothing. It could have been a misinterpretation. The black market arms dealer finds out that the IMF team through miscommunication wants this thing called the rabbit's foot. So therefore they really want it. The IMF team discover the black market arms dealer really wants something. So they, you could have the whole film revolving around nothing. It doesn't matter. Something is there that we think will satisfy us. And when we don't get it, we're depressed. And when we do, we're depressed. We're just like Roadrunner, right? You know what happens? Roadrunner, he's, he doesn't catch the bird. Everything's rubbish. He's always chasing the bird. Can't catch it. But what's even worse, he gets the bird. He has a meal. For Family Guy did an episode where, you know, Wile E. Coyote catches the Roadrunner. He has a lovely meal. And it's like... His friend says, oh, you know, what are you going to do now? And Roadrunner's eating his, or Wiley Coyote's eating his meal, saying, oh, I don't know. I haven't trained for anything else. I've been chasing this bird for 20 years. I'm sure something will turn up. And then he tries to kill himself with one of his catapults until he gets religion, ironically. Um, <laughs> but but uh, this, this frenetic pursuit um, that, that I say we're all caught up in, and this, by the way, can be called a death drive. The interesting thing about human beings is how unutilitarian we are. Animals are very utilitarian. They've read J.S. Mill, they've read Bentham, right? Not us. If you, if you put mice, there's this experiment where they put mice in a cage, where behind a glass sheet was really good food and easily accessible bad food. The mice bounce against the sheet to try to get the good food. They can't get it, so they eat the bad food. Fair enough. Then, as evil scientists do, they take them out, they play around with their brains, they put them back in. What happens now? Well, they're able to get the mice to bounce against the glass until they die, because they can't renounce the good food. There's something non-utilitarian about that. Human beings are fascinating because we can act against our own self-interest. Why do I keep going out with people who hurt me? Anybody? Why do I keep pursuing something? Like, so Ayan Rand says, well, the thing about capitalism is at least it's just, it, it works because it works on our self-interest, our selfishness. Whether it's good or bad, it works on our, our selfish pursuit. Um, but the problem with that is actually, 
It doesn't. If, if you meet a successful capitalist often who's made a lot of money, if they were selfish, they'd stop after they'd made 10 million, 20 million, 40 million, 100 million, but they don't. They keep pursuing to the detriment of their health, to their family, everything. The great Gatsby, I mean, the guy doesn't even enjoy his own stuff. He's throwing these parties, but he never goes to them. He never uses the pool. He's obsessed with this woman. And he doesn't get to enjoy his own thing. It's, 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 it's the rich people's kids who go out and have a blast, you know, drive all the fancy cars, you know. And not, not, often not the person themselves who, who damage themselves through this death drive, this obsessive pursuit of something that will bring wholeness and meaning. Um, what I want to argue is actually there's a, there's, this um, is expressed in the opening story of the Torah where you have two people walking around garden and everything's great, they can do whatever they want. And then someone says, don't eat that, that tree, from me that tree. Don't eat from that tree. What? Well, what makes a tree magical? Well, we all know the fact that someone said, don't eat from it. It's like you say to a kid, uh, don't, don't open that box when we leave the room. <laughs> box, right? And, and, then, and then, of course, the kid gets an inner voice. Remember the serpent? Did they really say, don't, eat that, don't open that box? You know, start to justify it a lot. That the prohibition generates a desire to transgress the prohibition. And suddenly an excess comes into the world. I mean, very quickly, imagine someone's in love. This kid in school, really good artist. And he, he, he's in love with this girl in the class. He's terrible at art, absolutely terrible at art. But anyway, he's sitting in the canteen one day and he hears two girls like saying really nasty things about the girl's artwork. Terrible things, laughing at how bad she is. But then she comes along and they turn sickly sweet and they tell her, oh, you're so good at art, you're brilliant. You should put something in the show at the end of the month, you know, so the whole school can see how good you are. And he's like, I can't believe they're saying that. Anyway, the next day she says to him, and by the way, she's never really noticed him before, but she comes over and says to him, would you come back to my place tonight? I want, I want to show you something. He's like, wow, elated, you know? So he goes back and he shows her, or she shows him this awful painting, terrible painting. And she says, what do you think? And he's like, oh, I think it's amazing. I think it's fantastic. Because uh, he loves her. He's going to lie, right? Um, and, then, and then she says, okay, because I'm thinking of exhibiting it in the art exhibition. So now, disaster. He's implicated in this evil girl's plot to humiliate her in front of the entire school. So what does he do? Well, the day of the submissions, he goes in last. He steals her painting and a couple of the really good ones. He knows he's going to get caught. There's CCTV and stuff, but he destroys them. And when he's caught and he's asked, why did you do it? Well, of course, he says, I wanted to win the art prize, so I stole the best paintings. There was never a masterpiece in that story, but by stealing something mundane, a masterpiece is born in the fantasy and the imagination of, of the people. Because now everybody's thinking, oh, that must have been amazing. When you steal away something mundane from a child, it becomes kind of sublime. But nothing more enters into the world, but something takes on a different tonality, a different kind of experience. So this I want to call a type of idol. It's the object that promises that we'll be whole and complete, that everything, if we only had it, everything would be great. That's the pledge, this object, whatever it is. And then you have the turn. So in Christianity, you have this moment where it's kind of like a, it's like a magician's room. You have this temple. And like any good magician, you've got a temple curtain. You've got the object that you're going to make disappear behind it. 
and you have the audience. And the place, this is called the Holy of Holies. The temple curtain um, is kind of where the priest is. And then the, the court of Gentiles is where all of us can hang out. And this kind of mimics what you see in the Garden of Eden. This idea that, oh, you know, behind that curtain is the thing that would make me whole and complete. There's where God is, the Holy of Holies, the best thing ever, right? Um, but then the magic trick. The second part is the turn, where the magician strips away the curtain. What I want to argue is in that moment, we realize there's nothing there. What's called God is dead. The central moment of Christianity is the realization that there is nothing behind the curtain that will make you whole and complete. The thing that you think will do it is an illusion, is a fantasy. It's traumatic. It's the moment of hocus pocus. By the way, hocus pocus probably comes from a hoc est corpus, what the priest says during mass, right? So the magicians were kind of like using a mock Latin phrase. Even the word pater probably comes from pater noster. So there's this sense of a magic trick. But of course, the trick doesn't end there. The trick doesn't end there. There's another element to it. It's the return. But you don't get quite back what you expect. And by the way, this is an amazing experience because the pursuit of something that will make you happy, the pursuit of this object is what makes you unhappy. It's what makes you depressed. But worse than that, it's you imagine other people have it. So it's, not only does it make you depressed, you imagine someone else has the thing that would make you happy. So asylum seekers, oh, they're, you know, they're taking our jobs, they're lazy and they're taking our money. Two mutually exclusive terms, you know, they're working harder for less and taking our jobs, and two is they're lazy and taking our money. It doesn't matter, they have something that we shouldn't have. It's like if you break up with someone, you know, you've got your tinfoil hat on and collecting urine and bottles, and you're imagining that they're out having a laugh, right, having a great old time. We fantasize that the other has this pleasure that we don't have. And you see it in Hollywood, the, the, the bad guys are always the happy ones. They're always, like the Joker literally has a, a smile etched on his face. It's the Batman who's depressed, you know? So, and we, th with this idea that the other has this pleasure and we want to take it from them. That's why Gore Vidal said, every time a friend succeeds, a part of me dies, right? You know, it's like, like, oh yeah, I'm really happy for you. Oh, things are really working out, you know? Um, so we fantasize the other has this happiness that we don't have. And, and thirdly, we often pretend that we have the happiness so as to really annoy other people or evoke their desire. You know those letters parents often write about how great their kids are at Christmas? I don't know, they do it in America. And it's like little Joey, you know, straight A's, he's going to be president. Little Joey has a heroin addiction, lives in a car at the back of the house, right? doesn't matter. It's the illusion. You know, that's why they say success is the sweetest revenge, because not because, you know, happiness and success is good, it's because it's, it's rubbish. But if, as long as, the, you, you know, other people think you're having a laugh, you get a substitute happiness from people thinking that you're happy, right? You're not happy, you're just pretending, and then the pretense gives you a substitute happiness. So this is the problem with this object, whatever it is that's pursuing you, it destroys our lives, it destroys our relationships with each other, it causes excessive violence and, and, and excessive attachment. So it disappears. And then what I would argue is we have this image that now this object is not a thing out there. The sacred is not something you can grasp. The sacred is the depth dimension in all of existence. The sacred is the experience of depth in being. And actually, love is what required, not belief, but an engagement in love. And here's the interesting thing about, about love, and I know I need to, I'm doing okay. He's keeping me right, I'm gonna get pulled off soon. Um, 
This idol, this sacred object, three things about it. It exists. To exist means to stand out. It exists. It's there. It's, if only I could get it. If only I could get it, it'd be great. Maybe it's God or that new car or that bigger house or that person, whatever it is. But it exists until you get it and then you realize it doesn't exist. Um, it's sublime and beautiful until you get it and you realize it's fool's gold. And it's meaningful until you touch it and then you realize it's not, it's meaningless. Love is very different. Love does not exist. It doesn't stand out. You can't touch it or feel it or hold it up. Love calls things into existence. I had a friend who was on a train. She forgot her ticket and the guy was coming down. It's again, America, very litigious. You know, she was really worried. She had no money and she was like, oh no, he's going to really like throw me off or throw me off the bus or something or train. But he comes up and she's like, I'm really sorry. I don't have a ticket. And she's like, don't worry about it, love. It's fine. They sit down, they tell a few stories, they show pictures of each other's kids. And he gets up to leave, and this is a true story, she turns to him and says, listen, I'm just really sorry. And he turns around and says, don't, don't say anything. It's just nice to be seen. It's just nice to be seen. Right now, he's seen by thousands of people every day, but only as a cog in a wheel, as, a, as somebody performing a function. But he felt in that moment that he was seen as a singular individual. I walk around, Sydney Opera House, I see hundreds of people, but if I see someone I love, they stand out from the undulated sea of others. I see them. Secondly, love is not sublime. Love is not beautiful. Love doesn't want hymns of praise. Love is what says, look at that person in front of you. They are sublime. They are beautiful. They are wonderful. Love is like a little field mice in the dark. As soon as you put the torch, all you see is a tail, you know? And thirdly, love is not meaningful. Love is what renders the world meaningful. When we're not in love, a walk is just a way to get from A to B. Food is a fuel to use. But when you're in love, eating becomes communion with someone. Walking becomes a way of enjoying nature. You know, the, if you don't have that, everything, a sunset, a yacht trip, a private jet, none of it means anything. But in love, things become meaningful. The simplest of things become meaningful. And of course, the trick is when you let go of love as an existing sublime and meaningful thing and give yourself to the act of love. And by the way, that would be crazy to do. Love is a mental thing. But if you were stupid enough to do it, it feels like the most preeminently beautiful and existing and wonderful things of all. So I'll finish with this example. Example of marriage and relationships. Um, you know, to propose to someone to ask someone to marry you is perhaps the most horrible thing you could ever do to somebody. It's, it's unethical, it's, it's, it's evil. I mean, you know what you're like and you're gonna do that to someone that you love. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's just horrible. Um, you, know, I, you, know, you wouldn't do that to somebody you hated, let alone someone you care about. You're gonna impose yourself on them. And, and what's worse is you know it's probably gonna end in disaster. You probably, you know, most marriages end in like adultery and, and, and divorce and even the ones that don't just end in silent resentment where you're sleeping in separate bedrooms and kind of hate each other, right? Now, if I say that to somebody, I did say that to somebody once just the day after they got married, wrong time to say it. Um, but, you know, but if I say that to somebody, in fact, if I say to you, you're about to propose to somebody, you know what, I've got a time machine. I'm gonna to go to the future and I'm gonna record the very moment when everything goes wrong. The very moment when you start to use your kids as weapons against the other, right? I'm gonna show you that. Well, some people might go, yeah, I couldn't be bothered with that, I'm gonna walk away. But the true lover is the one who says, yeah, I'll walk away and they go, ah, you know, I can't. Because you cut me and I bleed her. 
You know, I can't do anything else. I'll do it anyway. I'll commit anyway. That for me is faith. Faith is not a mode of belief. Faith is a commitment to the idea that the world is beautiful, that people and life is worth living and dying for. It's not about life after death. Who cares about that? It's about, is it possible to have life before death? Is that possible? That's what I want to know. Is it possible to actually enjoy our lives here and now, not have a hope in something in the future that we just sit back and wait on. That's terrible. The kind of hope without hope, the risky hope that says we can have a better life, but the only way you can engage in it is you get involved with that hope. You have to incarnate it. You have to be part of it. The hope that requires bodily interaction. That is the kind of hope that, um, that, that I think this is talking about, that we want. And it's a place where we realize that the good news, and here is the good news, and we'll, we'll have an altar call. We're gonna be just as I am is gonna be singing and, and we're just coming to the front. The good news is life is rubbish and we don't know the secret. That doesn't sound that great. <laughs> that sounds a bit rubbish, but no. I think the good news that, that life can be brilliant and you can be whole is terrible news. It just breeds problems and breeds sadness and depression. But the idea that life is difficult and we all have to work through this together, but there's a form of joy you can find in the midst of life by actually getting involved and caring for other people and you know, really engaging with life and, and in its suffering, not as an escape from it, is beautiful. It's all summed up in this, a beautiful Buddhist parable about a woman who has a beautiful baby girl, but after only a few days of life, the child dies. The woman is distraught. She wraps the child's body in linen and she wraps that body to her own and she goes in search of someone, anyone who could resuscitate her child. I mean, faith healers and witch doctors, elders, no one can help. But finally, some people in the village say, high up in the mountain, away from everyone, there's supposedly a holy man who is so close to the source of all things that he can even raise the dead. Perhaps it's a myth or perhaps he's long since dead, but if you're that desperate, go in search of him. And she does. She packs a few possessions and she goes up into the mountains. She's told that he lives beside a crystal clear lake. So eventually she does find a little hut beside a lake and she knocks on the door. An old man comes out and she begins to weep. I don't know if you're the one I'm looking for and I don't know if you can help me, but my child is dead and I must have her back. Well, the old man takes pity on her and says, I am the one you're looking for and, and I can help you. But I need to concoct a potion. I need some mustard seeds to do that. Mustard seeds taken from a home that has not been burned by that black sun of suffering that has touched your life. Go back into the village and bring them, bring them to me. So the woman goes back into the village and she's not able to find one home that has not been touched by darkness and death and sadness. And yet, and yet, as she hears the stories of other people's suffering, as she hears the stories of other people's survival through those trials and tribulations, she is gradually able to come to terms with the death of her child and finally bury her in the earth. And then that's it. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
As I mentioned before, if you'd like to ask a question, make a comment, but hopefully a question really, rather than a long speech of your own, there's a microphone stand at the top, there's one just here. Please make your way towards that and I'll ask you just to give your name and to pose your question. But, but as people come along and start getting ready to do that, uh, it seems to me that you are in part at least asking people to believe in something, which is love, uh, to believe in uh, a certain view of the world and, and human suffering and things like that. Is that right or is, and, or is there more to be said about the importance of doubt itself? Yeah, no, I, I want to say kind of the opposite of that. I mean, my, my concern is, I, I think Christianity traditionally is um, a protest against the wisdom tradition. You'll read these ideas of being against philosophy. The wisdom tradition is generally the tradition that tells you life is meaningless. You know, life is just life being, it's just being atoms in motion. Now, I don't think that I'm protesting that intellectually. I don't mind if someone believes that or not. What I'm saying is that I think faith is the lived protest against it. It's, the, it's whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. You can believe life is completely meaningful, but if you don't love, you know, you experience it as meaningless. And if, again, as I say, the opposite is you can believe the world is meaningless, but if you love, you can't help but experience it as meaningful. So it's an existential commitment that I think can operate within worldviews and despite worldviews. Yeah, but you're saying you, you don't mind what people believe, but I'm wondering, are you wanting to take this... I mean, this, this may not have been your title, but the session title here is claiming that mm. something about doubting itself yes. is divine. And I'm just wondering if you can unpack a little bit as to, if you do hold this view, why do you think the role, the role of doubt is so important yeah. in life? Well, that was the marriage example is the one I want to come back to. Is So I, I do all of this to the person. I say, you know, you should, you know, it's not going to work. It's going to be terrible. The chances are it's not going to happen. That doesn't take away from the marriage commitment. See, in America, you get all these young people getting married in their 20s, right? And they think that it's been written in the stars, like, oh, this is definitely going to work. This is definitely going to happen. Now, most of us, after a few years, realize it ain't that easy. And I think that doesn't take away from the romance of a marriage proposal. I think the reason why people try to say, marry me and like fireworks and all that rubbish is, is because they've taken the most romantic thing out of it, which is the doubt. She's like, I don't think this is going to work. I don't know if I love you. I don't know if you love me. I think this is madness. But, but will you marry me? That's where doubt exposes a deeper commitment to love rather than... Otherwise, if you're certain about something, if I've got an army of 10,000 people and I'm going to fight 10 Harry Krishnas with wooden spoons, there's no decision to make. It's easy. You know, doubt is what opens you up to have to take real risks. Mm -hmm. Anybody wanting to come and join the conversation? Just have to make your way down to the microphone, otherwise I'll happily amuse myself up here and oh, hopefully you too. Um, you would, I, I love this analogy of the, of the magic trick. Um, there's the... The pledge, what's the second bit? The turn. The turn and the prestige. I can imagine um, Christians listening to you, the tradition to which you're aligned, saying, yeah, we sort of get this. There's the pledge, uh, which is, you know, the Jesus born and the promise of salvation. There's the turn, which is the, the death, crucifixion. But they're going to be wanting to say, oh, but it's surely the prestige is the resurrection. Yeah. Uh, so for those people who've got a more conventional view of Christianity, what's your equivalent in that tradition of that story then? And what happens? What yeah. do you think of that story? Well, I mean, for me, the Eucharist um, is a reinterpretation of the Eucharist. I think the Eucharist is a magic trick, right? You've got, until it's in, in, in like 1600s, an Archbishop of Canterbury, he saw this, now he hated it, <laughs> but, he, but he saw the connection. 
But the, you, you, you've got the bread and the wine, that's the pledge. Here is God, right? Then you've got the turn, the disappearance of the bread and the wine in the body. God is dead, God is gone. And then you have the prestige. And what's that? Is it the return? No, you don't you know, bring this stuff back up. The, the prestige is you realize, ah, we are now the body of believers. We are in, in the midst. This is the Eucharistic movement. Now, that's a radical reading. You won't hear that in church. You won't hear any of this in church. I don't go to church. I'm not interested in that. Uh, but I think you find it in this subversive reading. Now, the, and the interesting thing about the prestige that I said is you don't get back what you think you're getting back. So in the prestige, you get back the sacred, but not as an object. As I say, now you get the sacred back as, as a depth dimension in objects. In other words, God is no longer an object that you love. In other words, God is higher than love. You love God, the object. Now God is this insistent call that is found in the act of love itself. That is a church for the theist, atheist, and agnostic in all of us, because all of those people dwell within us, whether we like it or not. And this radical Christianity, and we've got communities, they are full of atheists, theists, and agnostics. But they call themselves Christian? Uh, yeah, to a certain extent. To a certain extent, yeah. Let's see it here. Sam, uh, Peter, you spoke a lot about like the human drive to be always working towards this elusive goal, mm -hmm. like the sort of Higgs boson of yeah. our personal uh, drive through life. And it, it seems to me that you point, you sort of suggested that was a negative thing because either we don't get it or if we do get it, we end up being disenchanted. But what if that thing you're working towards is something that will bring huge happiness to a huge number of people, say a scientist working towards a cure for a terrible disease, yeah. he achieves it. Maybe his life is damaged by the pursuit or the commitment, but others have, have benefited from it. How, how does that weigh into your philosophy? Absolutely. And one thing is, by the way, why, why do you think I write obsessively? I mean, I'm kind of probably dealing with this very issue. But I, I would say this, that I'm not arguing for the, the loss of desire. I'm not arguing for a westernized form of Buddhism where the answer is, you know, that we give, get rid of this pursuit of something. But what I'm arguing for is basically this. There is a pursuit of something that we can never get, and I think that's destructive. And that, by the way, is how I think frenetic consumerism works. We're always trying to get the new thing, and it's, it's potentially what's going to destroy us. But then there's the break of that. But the return, for me, again, coming back to love, love is interesting because you don't, desire isn't sated in the one that you love. Desire is born there. If you, if you break up with someone and you're running around trying to go out with somebody, everyone keeps away from you because they know you don't really, you just want to use them as a, you know, because you're depressed or lonely or whatever. But actually love is more easily born when you're not looking for someone. And the, the truth of the lover is, I never needed you until I met you. And now that I met you, I realized I always needed you. So lovers are like the TARDIS. They're small, fragile, fleshly frames, but they open up to infinite proportions, infinite worlds. And the interesting thing about that is, you then have an excessive desire to go deeper into the, into the relationship with them. Whenever you love, you know when you love someone, not when you miss them when they're not there, but when you miss them when they are there. Whenever there's like something about them that's calling me. So what I'm basically saying is this, there is a frenetic pursuit of creating things that doesn't have to come from lack, but comes from an excessive desire for what you already have. And that's the healthy form of, of, of attachment to the world that I want to propagate. But, but sometimes if you do love and are committed to something, you will inevitably overdo it. Yeah. And, 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 and I think society is often pushed forward by individuals and groups who I sacrifice agree. their own well-being. I agree. To, to achieve progress. So it is, yeah. it, it, does it need to be an unhealthy thing for some people to achieve? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, sadly, probably you look at a lot of the buildings, I don't know about this building, you know, probably could be somebody who had that field love affair, you know, I, I don't know, but it's good, we're all now sitting in this, and you all have the privilege of listening to me, <laughs> I'm sorry, um, but, so I think a lot of things are created because of that reason. My, my issue is this, but that might be positive to a certain extent, but it might be what destroys us as a society, the frenetic pursuit of more and more. So I think, you know, if we were more satisfied with what we have, it might actually cause us to be able to um, break free of this frenetic consumerism. However, I do agree with you that, that I'm not saying detach yourself from desire. I'm just saying love what you have and go deeper into that. Create out of a love out of an excess, not out of a lack, because that's just destructive. We, we were in a session this morning, earlier today actually, with uh, Lawrence Krauss about atheism and religion. And I got so, totally beaten. No, I'm no, sorry. No. Ed. Well, I want to <laughs> reframe a question that was asked of you at that session, which was, uh, why, would, why do you want to frame your approach in the language of religion in general, and Christianity in particular, when I imagine that you could argue a perfectly persuasive case about uh, accepting that life is uncertain, uh, the value of loving relationships and other things just on good, solid psychological grounds without any of the other traditional associations with religion in general and Christianity in particular. So why have you put yourself in that space? Yeah, I think that was, that was the main core of the problem in the last debate, is why would I use the terms of religion for this? But to use an analogy, the, the, the difference between you know, classical physicists and then the move into quantum mechanics didn't happen because the, the classical physicists didn't take the laws of physics seriously. They went, oh, let's not take this seriously, it's probably crazy and mental. They took it more seriously than everybody else. They went deeper in and found this crazy world where the rules seemed to auto-deconstruct themselves. What I'm arguing is actually, the further you go into this text, the more you find that there's all these auto-deconstructive elements within religion that, that actually open up to something else. My argument is actually that fundamentalism exists partly because it doesn't take its own position seriously enough and therefore doesn't encounter its own horror. That, um, you know, it, 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 it says things like, uh, you know, if you pray enough, uh, you know, everything will be fine, but, but except if it's really seriously and then call an ambulance, you know, that's the underlying thing. But actually the radicals that I find are the ones who fully believe their belief, encountered the weakness of them. Generally what happens is people in church think that the inside is where it's all holy and great and they work their way into the centre and then they realise it's terrible in there, it's just as bad, but now their jobs are on the line. Now, like, by the way, I meet ministers and worship leaders all the time. We all know they don't believe half of what they say. I mean, that's the big secret. All these ministers believe. The only believers are the ones who aren't in the centre. But by that stage, you're getting all the money. So you so, reckon if I went to talk to Pope Francis, for example, he'd say... Look, yeah, actually, he's right. I don't really believe much of this stuff, but, but it works. Is that, no, yeah, seriously, is that, is that what you think? Well, if he, he was being honest with, with, with us, he'd say that? Well, he's because I, I haven't been watching him closely, but he's not talking much about belief at all, as far as I can see. No, he's talking about you know, the two great commandments and relationships and things like that. Yeah, but, but, like, but, he, but opening up like all of this kind of like, he actually talked about doubt. Recently, didn't he do a mm -hmm. big thing? You know, now, I'm a bit suspicious about that because a lot of talk about doubt in religion is like, you can have a dark night of the soul, but have a nightlight switched on. You know, it's like, you can doubt God because God is, is able to contain your doubt. That's not doubt, you know? That's like, that's like going on a roller coaster. That's not dangerous. You're all strapped in, but you don't feel the real danger. So I am nervous about that. But, you know, I think the fact that he's talking about doubt and unknowing is interesting. I, I still don't think I've heard you tell me why... Yes. ...why you yes. want to position yourself... <laughs> as part of religion 
yeah. and Christianity more particularly. What is it? I mean, might, might, might I ask you personally, did you go through the traditional religious route, you know, altar boy and things like that, or were you ever a kind of churchgoer in the more conventional sense and then turned away from it or something else happened? Yeah. No, I had, a, I, I had this kind of radical kind of conversion when I was 17 into a kind of charismatic kind of evangelicalism. Um, that was my first encounter. Evangelical Christianity? Yeah, that's, and I, I was in that for like years. So you were like, you know, the real, you'll go to hell type. Yeah, well, you know, yeah, pretty much. But I was like definitely out there preaching. And, and uh, you know, I used to try and get people to believe. And I, it wasn't, it was easy. Getting people to believe is easy because people want to believe. People want to have some idea that, like when you say to a little girl, you're a beautiful princess, or you say to a little boy, you're a brave soldier. They're not. A brave soldier doesn't cry when he grazes his knee. And a little girl, you know, a princess doesn't wear $5, you know, target dresses or from Woolworths. Um, 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 <laughs> These are, Sorry, these anybody <laughs> in a five-dollar target dress today? You're still a princess. <laughs> you know, they're not strong and they're not fast. They're weak. I mean, kids are weak. I can beat them in arm wrestles all the time. I, I only arm wrestle kids, right? But these narratives, of course, they're useful because they, I'd be a great dad. But they, they, they create a sense of like mastery, a sense of security. So, so um, why did you stop? If you're good at it, if you were sort of bringing souls in for your particular beliefs. Why it, did you stop? Because it was horrible. It didn't do anything good. I mean, I've realised that what is much harder to get people to doubt, to ask questions, to interrogate their political, religious, and cultural views. That's tough. But I find that that, that was actually more liberating. So, so why not come to my dark side of philosophy then? You know, leave the leave religion aside and engage in philosophical discourse. Yeah. Um, become the you know the Socratic life. Why, why, why keep in that religious space? Yeah, I, my PhD is in philosophy. <laughs> so, I'm, I so, like you're, philosophy. so you're in the dark yes, side. I'm yeah. in the dark side. However, I will say this, I, I have to be honest, like I find the resources for many of these ideas in the, the text itself. And there is this move, and even in philosophy, there's people like Slavoj Žižek, you know, radical yeah, atheist. He's, been, he's yeah. been here, and he's, he's, he's doing this theology. I'm kind of take, I steal a lot of his stuff, you know. There's a, a Gambin, Badieu, who are reading, who are doing theology outside the church. So I feel I'm part of that tradition. I would walk away very, very easily. I'm not getting paid by any religious institution, so I've got no skin in the game. But I do find that, that this text continues to have subversive and radical things to say once I steal it from the hands of the disingenuous religious so institutions. Do you, do you feel then that you are in some sense subverting religion for its own good in, in the traditional sense? Is that, is that really part of the project, to use its language to force it to face up to something which it's not yeah. facing up to at the moment. But I also think that's what, that's what religion at its best is, is doing, is subversive. I mean, even if you read the, the, the parables of Jesus, you mentioned this earlier, you know, these are subversive texts. There's, there's subversive. Job is an incredibly subversive text, which is kind of like ultimately Job stands against God at the end, you know? God looks like a, a spoiled kid. I mean, Ecclesiastes is a subversive text. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It can be read very subversively. So I would say that, that Christianity, you know, always reifies um, and has become conservative, but it has this radical potential within it that we need to release. Yes. I just want to ask a question here. It seems to me that what you were suggesting and why you're talking as a Christian is that if you want to get to the essence of religion, which is in fact love, and that may well be the essence of Islam and Buddhism and all these other uh, religions, that people who are religious should focus on the essence of their religion and not on the essence of their difference and their confrontation. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Now, that's the way in which I've read your speech today. And if I were you, that's the answer I'd be giving to your yeah. interrogator. Thank you. You should do this next year. Yeah. That's good. Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you. You're just going to say, yes, that's well, right. Or I, 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 absolutely. But I mean, I, I take, I'll take a, a, you know, Paul's conversion as a, as a moment of like, because you're talking about reconciliation. But Paul's an interesting figure because he's out there thinking this band, this new group, this is the problem, these group of Christians. And if, if only he could get rid of them, everything would be great. And then he has this revelation. They are the site of salvation. Why are you persecuting me? Which is the big thing is, despite a symptom is the first thing, you don't recognize your symptom. And then you recognize it and you realize or you think, I could cut that out, it's not really me. And then you realize the symptom is part of you. Like um, a story about, uh, very quickly, a guy's in a desert island, and he's rescued after 20 years on his own. And before he's rescued, uh, you know, taken off the island, someone says, show us where you lived. So he brings him to a clearing with three houses, three buildings. I say, what's that first building? He says, oh, that's where I used to live. For 20 years, I lived there. What's that second building? He says, that's a church I go to, very religious guy. He says, what's the third building? He says, I don't want to talk about it. He says, come on, tell me. He says, that's a church I used to go to, terrible place, right? Now, that's the symptom. The symptom is the thing that we think is not part of us. So Paul's persecuting these Christians. And then he realizes, no, you know what? If I listen to them um, and I'm not, I'm not scapegoat them, they would be able to help me understand my own inner, inner antagonisms and inner problems. And that's the key for me, is that Christ, religion at its core is asking us not to scapegoat people. Christ on the cross is the ultimate example. You kill someone because you want to get rid of them and you realize it's God. Not scapegoat people, but realize that the people you think are your enemy are the site of your salvation. The people that you think are bad and wrong, if you listen to them, might help you become better people. Yes, sir. Yes, sure. Um, I was... I was just wondering if you had a view on if we're seeing a, an arise in this kind of obsession with happiness and happyism yeah. in the modern world and with the kind of yeah. rise of uh, consumerism, um, materialism, uh, and, but also and, and how this sort of plays in if there is, if we think about some sort of decline in um, the role of religion in society, I don't know. Yeah, well, that, that's great. I mean, that's a Lacanian psychoanalysis brings this out, which is one of the most oppressive things for us in the West today is the demand to enjoy, the demand to go out there and you can have whatever you want and be whoever you want and consume and enjoy. And actually, a freedom today is the freedom not to enjoy, the freedom to step out of that frenetic pursuit. I go out on a Saturday night, everyone looks like they're having a ball, everyone's dancing, everyone, and you wonder, what would happen if you just turned off the music, turned up the lights and asked everybody to look at each other for 30 seconds. This would probably be in tears, you know? It's like, like we're all frenetically, supposedly enjoying. And so, yeah, I I think one of the the good, part of the good news of this, when I say the good news is life is difficult and you don't have the answers, is it's the good news that you don't have to enjoy. But of course, the trick being that you might actually find a deeper joy when you find freedom from that obsessive pursuit. Well, it seems to me that, one of the very important uh, challenges is for people to accept that it's okay not to know, yeah. to be uncertain, to live in. I, th- I think we do live in a culture which has been driven for eons, really, to find certainty, and uh, people find it very difficult not knowing things, yeah. and we'll make up answers as well. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, what's the most devastating argument you've heard against the propositions you've been putting today. If you wanted to sort of really test everything you've said, where would you attack your own position? 
Oh, wow, that's a good question. <laughs> um, wow. How would I attack my own position? You must have thought it through. I mean, you're a philosopher, so you must have said, well, what's wrong in this? So where, where do you see the weakness in it that you'd need to resolve? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I, the, one of the critiques I thought I might get would be, well, this isn't religion as it's practised. You know, it's all very well talking about this being Christianity or Judaism or religion, but it's not what we see in the pews. It's not what's, what's seen in the churches. Although I agree with that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of against that. Um, I mean, I suppose also it could, I could say that it's not really possible. The idea of, of being in that kind of way is a fantasy, is itself a fantasy. Yeah, but that, you've just raised what you think others might object. What about your own point? You must have seen some area in your own framework where you question because you're into questioning and doubt. So yeah. I'm still interested to know where are you finding the weaknesses in your own argument at the moment that you think need to be addressed as you developed your approach? Okay, wow. I mean, the, the main weakness, although it's non-intellectual weakness, so I, I know it's not exactly what you're looking for, but the weakness is it's not working for me. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm sorry. Sorry to burst your bubble. If you kind of listen to this and go, oh, this would be really good. No, it's not working for me. You know, I, no, you're in a country where we specialise in noble failure. We celebrate it all. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so. and, uh, and you say... Are you frustrated by that? that you, do you feel that this is something which ought to be working better than it is? Yeah. Well, that's why I obsessively do this. If I actually had what I'm talking about, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I wouldn't. I'd be sitting at home with a drink by the fire, enjoying life. I mean, my, my frenetic pursuit of reading and reflecting is my own protection mechanism against the trauma of, of, of letting go of this idea that I can be whole and complete and learning to live in that. And that is deeply frustrating. But I've got to be honest, that's what it... That's so you're feeling driven by this in some sense? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And do you think there's an antidote? When the whole world agrees with you and it embraces doubt as a divine attribute, then you'll relax or will you find something else? Oh, yeah, make lots of little Pete Rollinses running around the world, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, my, my thing is, but I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to myself. That's the big trick of this. I've never spoken to anyone else. I mean, I, I, a few years ago, I was sitting in Belfast in front of five people. Doing it. It's great. I'm now in Sydney chatting to you guys, but I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me. And, and if I ever am able to listen to myself, you'll know because I'll drop off the scene. And, um, you know, I, I do meet people, but I do meet people sometimes who I feel live without resentment, who I feel can, 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 can really want joy for those they've loved and lost, who can you can really embrace the life they have. When I meet those people, I just, I just want to say, how oh, did you do it? You know, they're the, they're, they're the people who are living this life before death. And um, I'll continue to write about it uh, until I can live it. Okay, well, I think that's actually a pretty good note on which to end, don't you? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, just to let you know, um, I think Peter will be heading towards somewhere in the Western foyer where books can be signed. Uh, but uh, that was a spontaneous applause. More yes. formally, uh, once way, again, join with me in thanking... My books do guarantee certainty and satisfaction. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> that is the one exception. Okay, they are blessed. Oh, beautiful work. Thank you, Peter Rollins. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks.